Come in, everyone. It's 3.25 p.m. Tuesday, January 25th, 2020. Thomas Mundy, M-U-N-D-Y. Thomas Mundy Peterson, the first black man to vote in U.S. as a park named in his honor. That was written on the 4th of October 2021 by B.O.T.W.C. Because of them, we can online. The first man to vote in the first black man to vote in the U.S. has a park named in his honor. He's finally getting his recognition. A New Jersey County Park has been named in honor of the first black man to vote in the United States. My Central Jersey Report A Middlesex County Park located in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, has been renamed in honor of Thomas Mundy Peterson, a city resident and the first black man to vote in the United States. Officials had a ribbon-cutting ceremony to unveil the park recently complete with picnic games sports trails food vendors college open houses and history lectures the new park features a a synthetic turf multi-purpose field that can be used for soccer or football another field that can be adjusted for softball or baseball a waterfront walkway oodles of benches and historical markers and a waterfront walkway. Quote, Thomas Mundy Peterson Park is an example of how when everyone involved works together we can create something wonderful for our residents to enjoy. I know that I and the entire board 
of county commissioners look forward to seeing this park being used and enjoyed by the people of Middlesex County. It is not only a wonderful outdoor space for county residents to enjoy, but is our way of paying a fitting tribute to a man that dedicated his life to serving the people and engaging critically, civically, in so many ways, in quote. Ronald Rios, commissioner director, said, Peterson was the first black person to vote in the county, in the country, excuse me, Peterson was the first black person to vote in the country after the passing of the 15th Amendment as to the U.S. Constitution granting black men the right to vote. The park is the 19th in the Middlesex County Park system and a long time coming. Many community residents advocated for a community space residents could enjoy that would honor a city native who had contributed significantly to history. Perth Amboy Mayor Hellman J. Cole said he is honored to help preserve the life and legacy of Peterson, Peter's son, and do it in a way that brings his constituents joy. Quote, The Thomas Mundy Peterson Park is the result of hard work on the part of the Middlesex County Board of County Commissioners and the City of Perth Amboy, who worked tirelessly to enhance the quality of life for our residents. This effort was many years in the making and represents more than just a park. It's a community gathering space that honors a Perth Amboy citizen who played an important role in the history of our country. We look forward to seeing all 
the enjoyment and education this park will bring to this and future generations, close quote, said Mayor Cole. The Thomas Mundy Peterson Park is located in Perth Amboy, New Jersey, at High Street, between Washington Street and Buckingham Avenue. Thank you for listening. announcing a second officer has died as a result of Friday's domestic disturbance call in Harlem. NBC News correspondent for investigations, Tom Winter here now. Uh, Tom, what else did Commissioner Sewell say? Well, the commissioner uh, talked to and pointed to the fact that uh, Wilbur Moore, who was the officer who died today uh, after Officer uh, Jason Rivera passed away on Friday as a result of their injuries responding to a domestic disturbance call. Uh, the commissioner coming out today and, and saying via tweet and via statement, and we can look at it, Allison, essentially calling this person a hero three times over uh, for not just... Uh, uh, not just for his death, uh, but for sacrificing his life to protect others and choosing a life of service. Um, she talks here about organ donation. So we were trying to figure out, Allison, this is a really incredible story, why he was transferred to NYU Langone uh, from Harlem Hospital uh, earlier, uh, or I should say over the weekend. Uh, we have found out the reason why for that. Um, he was transported there and surgery began this morning, we are told by a senior law enforcement official, uh, to be able to harvest his organs to be donated to those that need them. So uh, even as this officer was on his way to death, uh, he continued to serve those in New York City. So uh, it really an incredible story and an incredibly sad story. Uh, but this officer, uh, Wilbert Mora, uh, giving his organs uh, up for donation um, and then eventually dying this afternoon. Um, Tom, the suspect who shot and killed the officer is also dead. What do you know about him? Yeah, so, the, you know, there's really some questions that remain there. I mean, principally, how was this individual able to get his hands on weapons? And it yeah. wasn't just a gun that we were able to see on Friday night, clearly an illegally modified a Glock weapon because it had a, a, a drum barrel uh, of, uh, of ammo beneath it, which is not part of the normal uh, setup for that particular weapon. It is an illegal modification. He had no such a permit to have that weapon. Apparently, he was in a dispute with his mom at the time uh, that uh, she called 911. She did not mention uh, that, she, that there were any injuries. She did not mention that he was armed. Um, and then at some point, while the officers are there responding to it, McNeil, uh, the suspect, apparently opens fire and obviously ends up uh, now with two officers dead as a result. There was also an AR-15 that was found uh, in his room, and that's something that the ATF and NYPD are working together to figure out how he was able to get his hands on that weapon, which is obviously uh, very powerful and potentially very deadly. So still some questions remain about him and his past, Allison. 
Tom, New York City Mayor Eric Adams was elected on a promise to fight crime. What is he saying about this today? Yeah, he's on with a, with a tweet today that we can take a look at, but really the big announcement was yesterday, Allison, uh, talking about uh, Officer Mora, of course, and, and what he gave to the city and the communities and vowing that he's going to stand with the NYPD. Uh, yesterday announcing a series of uh, efforts that he says the NYPD, the city and the state, uh, along with federal law enforcement partners, are going to undertake to stop uh, the Iron Highway, if you will, this transport of illegal guns into New York City, uh, 6,000 taken off the street just in the past year. And looking at the reasons for that, whether it be uh, individuals under the age of 18 youths that are carrying these guns, uh, youths that may not be in school, may not have a job. So talking about a summer job program, a way to get these uh, kids back into the school system, get them off the streets, get them from uh, from carrying a gun, uh, trying to work with the district attorneys to say that if a, if a kid is caught with a gun, if they give up who gave them the gun, well, they'll be charged in family court and won't have to deal with repercussions as an adult. But if not, they could go to regular state criminal court and be charged as an adult and a whole host of other issues. I think where the rubber is going to meet the road here, mm -hmm. Allison, are the details of how they're going to fight this crime, because you've got five independent boroughs and five yeah. independent district attorneys in New York City. All of them have different viewpoints on how the law should be uh, upheld, if you will. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see how that dynamic works within the police department. I think one thing you can bet on is that uh, the plainclothes units. Uh, they really never quite went away uh, dealing with uh, anti-crime and gun. Uh, that You'll see a lot more stops uh, at various transit hubs into the city of uh, uh, asking people questions and, and seeing if they have guns on their person. And I think you're going to see a surge of cops into the top 30 or so precincts uh, that have a significant violent crime issue. Thanks for watching our YouTube channel. Follow today's top stories and breaking news by Okay, thank you for listening. This just really is um, un, unspeakable horror. This is the second NYPD officer died after the domestic dispute call they went to on Friday in Harlem. It sounds like they went to Harlem. 135th Street. Whew. We can't say we weren't there. So we can't say what coulda, woulda, shoulda been done. But, um, Wow. This is heartbreaking. All these police officers being killed, injured. It's just heartbreaking. It's just... Whew. It's got to stop. Okay, thank you for listening. who are going all in on AI. Elite World Group CEO Julia Hart is actually digitizing celebrities. She's making lifelike avatars of the world's best-known models, performers, and influencers and launching them into the metaverse. NBC News Now anchor Savannah Sellers joins us now with an inside look at this. 
a little bit scary, Savannah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. And if you're listening and that was a little bit over your head, don't worry because I'm right there with you. And while I can't explain the ins and outs of all of that quite yet, one thing we do know is that it is coming and businesses are starting to take notice. This might look like something out of the future. Well, guess what? That future is now. The metaverse is here to stay. That's right, the metaverse. Basically a new virtual world. Think video games and augmented reality, but with more intersection and overlap. Julia Hart is leading the charge. When I took over Elite World Group, the only reason I took over is because I started avatars, the metaverse, all of this, digitalizing the company, transforming ourselves into a media conglomerate the day I took over. I saw this coming. And I plan for it. You might recognize the CEO of Elite World Group from the hit Netflix show, My Unorthodox Life. After leaving her Orthodox Jewish community, Hart's become one of the most influential people in fashion and celebrity management. Management that now includes avatars of those celebrities. Our avatars are what we call very hyper-realistic avatars. These are not cartoon characters. They are computer-generated images of the person. Take Jasmine Sanders, for instance, a model and influencer with nearly 5 million followers and now a nearly identical avatar. Hart says having this digital clone can transform the lives of her clients by essentially allowing them to be everywhere at once and the lives of their fans around the globe hoping for a piece of them. Your avatar doesn't get old. It doesn't get sick. It doesn't need to travel. It doesn't have to worry about COVID. Jasmine's avatar can walk 14 runways in 14 different countries while she's napping. Jasmine can take you shopping at your favorite website. You can hang with Jasmine and she can tell you which outfits she likes on you. So does the line between any type of talent, their real physical body and their avatar become blurred in some way? Jasmine's real human being can walk a physical runway. Jasmine's avatar can walk a runway on the moon. The process to create one is tedious. A full day of 360 imaging and motion capture to train your avatar to move like you. They make you do all sorts of things. Laugh, cry, frown, get angry, get happy. Every range of emotions so that your avatar, when it has that emotion, looks like you. Hart says eventually they'll even talk like they're human, coupling this technology with artificial intelligence. But as dystopian as this may sound, Hart says her avatars won't replace the real thing. We need human touch, right? Mm. We can't be alone. Yeah. We are not made to be alone. And to me, that's what makes this beautiful. It's not a replacement of, it's an addition to, meaning there are moments where you all want to come together, but there are also moments when you cannot. That's when the avatar will step in to save the day and to transform the industry. I'm glad you worked that last bit in there because I was worried that this was going to turn into, you know, me in a basement at 800 pounds because my avatar can go out and do everything. <laughs> Let me ask you, though, you know, you mentioned some of the artificial intelligence will allow the avatars to do more stuff. What are some of the potential applications here for, for AI as it expands? 
Erin, I'm so glad you asked that because this part sort of blew my mind. So I worked in that piece a little bit. I mentioned that eventually they'll be able to talk like you. Now, the way that she says that that's going to happen is you will spend hours, days, weeks, months talking to your avatar should you go through this process or should it become more mainstream. Your avatar will then learn how to talk like you, anticipate how you would respond to things. And get this, this is the part that really blew my mind. Julia sees this as something that even down the road, let's say a famous celebrity, can essentially leave their avatar to their children, to their grandchildren, and continue to learn and talk from them. That's where I was a little bit like, okay, I'm kind of freaked out now. But you can kind of see what she's seeing down the road here, which is just this real application for them to continue to talk, think, act like you. I'm hoping our bosses are not paying any attention yeah, right. to any of this. <laughs> yeah. We need the physical bodies in the building to do the news anchoring. Exactly. No avatars allowed. That's my position. <laughs> Savannah Sellers, thank you. Thanks, Aaron. <laughs> about this news from the FDA. It's halting the use of certain antibody treatments because they don't work against Omicron. So can you talk to us about the science behind that? And really, are there other innovative ways as we talk about the future when it comes to treating these COVID patients? Yeah, Morgan, this is one of the challenges of Omicron. The laboratory data has shown that for a few of the antibodies, monoclonal antibodies, two in particular, Regeneron and Eli Lilly's candidates that we've been using against COVID-19, it really renders them not that useful. And so what FDA has said is while these companies are working on updating their cocktails of antibodies, right, to have them specifically target Omicron, that doctors should not use them because 99% of the cases right now in the United States are Omicron. And your doctors, when you get diagnosed we don't know if you have Omicron or Delta. And so to be safe, because its likelihood is, is that it is Omicron, to take those off the table. However, there are new treatments, Morgan, that are available and others that we've known about for a while that we have good evidence may work earlier in disease. So some of these are citrovimab, an existing monoclonal antibody that still works. We also know there's oral antiviral pills from Merck and Pfizer, which, you know, the availability of which will increase. And the last thing is remdesivir that we've been dealing with. We have now new data that if you can use it in the first uh, seven days after symptom onset, you can decrease chances of getting hospitalized by 90%. And so we're, we're reaching for those, those tools now. Thanks for watching our YouTube channel. Follow today's top stories and breaking news by... said, don't worry, sleep well, no need to have your bags packed. Does the U.S. agree with that assessment that an invasion is not imminent? Well, no one can get into the mind of President Putin uh, or Russian leadership. Uh, we all know that is the case. What we have seen is a range of preparations, including 100,000 troops at the border, bellicose rhetoric, and actions, as we've talked about in here, including fl false flag operations to try to spread misinformation uh, throughout uh, the region and even the world, uh, setting up the predicate for an invasion. Uh, so while, of course, our preferred path is diplomacy and we can't predict where the mind of President Putin is, we've certainly seen aggressive actions and preparations increasing at the border. And then secondly, the FDA yesterday withdrew the EUA for some monoclonal antibody treatments because they don't work against Omicron. But Florida continues to push for the treatment for people in the state. What's your response to Governor Santis, and what's your message to the people of Florida? Well, let's just take a step back here just to realize how crazy this is a little bit. Um, we've approached uh, COVID treatments like filling a medicine cabinet. We're not relying on one type, one brand, or treatment. 
We invested in and continue to buy a variety across monoclonal antibodies, pre-exposure prevention therapies, and oral antivirals. We have provided 71,000 doses of antivirals to Florida, including 34,000 additional treatments that do work against Omicron just this last week. I'm sorry, about of a range of those treatments, I should say, to be clear. What the FDA is making clear is that these treatments, the ones that they are fighting over, that the governor is fighting over, do not work against Omicron, and they have side effects. That is what the scientists are saying. We have sent them 71,000 doses of treatments that are effective against Omicron and are effective also against Delta. Uh, and they are still advocating uh, for treatments that don't work. Uh, we've seen, unfortunately, from the beginning uh, in our pandemic response, a range of steps or pushes that have been made through social media platforms, unfortunately, from the mouths of elected officials uh, and the advoc advocating for things that don't work, even when we know things do work injecting disinfectant, promoting other pseudoscience, sowing doubt on the effectiveness of vaccines and boosters, and now promoting treatments that don't work. We know it works, vaccines and boosters. We have a range of doses of things that do work in treatments, and we're providing those to Florida. Go ahead. Jen, uh, the president said last night that there is total unanimity with all the European leaders on Russia. Uh, how can he say that when Germany, for example, uh, has been so outspoken against even providing arms to Ukraine? Well, I think what the president's speaking to is uh, united agreement uh, among our NATO partners, including Germany, about the fact that there will be severe consequences, severe economic consequences, should they invade. Uh, as our national security advisor and our secretary of state have said, uh, that doesn't happen. That unity doesn't happen uh, on its own. It's required a lot of work. It also means that actions may not be identical, but we will be unified and they will be strong and severe. I'll also note that the Germans, and we expect the chancellor to come here in February and hopefully we'll have more specifics on that uh, soon, has also been uh, vocal about this uh, and about the severity of, of a response that would, that would take place uh, should Russia invade. And how is the U.S. Uh, currently assessing the risk of a Russian cyber attack on the U.S. homeland and what is it doing to prepare for it? I don't have any uh, intelligence that I'm going to read out from here, as I don't think you would certainly expect. Um, obviously, we're focused right now on uh, on Russia's intentions as it relates to uh, military invasion on the ground and other steps they've taken, uh, pushing propaganda, uh, uh, false flag, uh, false flag operations that we've spoken about quite vocally from here. Broadly, we are always preparing for any um, any action that uh, related to cyber or any other activity that any country could take, but I don't have a prediction against about that at this point in time, nor is that something that our national security team has assessed that I'm aware of. Okay. And do you think we can expect that the president will speak with President Putin anytime soon again? He's always been open to uh, engaging at a leader-to-leader -leader level. He knows how effective that is. He's obviously spoken with President Putin directly and candidly uh, a number of times, including in person. I don't have anything to predict at this point in time where he's meeting with his national security team on a daily basis, getting updates. And uh, if that assessment is made or recommendation is made, uh, we'll let you all know. Go ahead. As it relates to the 8,500 American troops who have been... Um put in a heightened state of readiness mm -hmm. in preparation to go there. Has the president or has the White House heard from our allies, NATO allies, about the expectation or desire for any unilateral American troops to go to that region? Well, the announcement was made, as you know, Peter, to 
be a part of a NATO force, right? And so all of these consultations that have ha been happening over the last several days with our European partners and NATO partners has been about that. 8,500 service members, troops who are at the ready. Uh, and the decision about whether they would be deployed uh, would be made in coordination with our NATO partners and allies, including any additional discussions or requests outside of that. I would point you to the Pentagon. I don't have anything to assess so, for you. There's no, to, to the best of your knowledge right now, that's the president's intention to work exclusively via NATO to not send any troops unilaterally in any form. Well, again, we're working through NATO to plus up support in our eastern flank countries. That is what NATO is there for, and we're committed to uh, the sanctity of that alliance. Uh, just to be clear, there is no intention or interest or desire by the president to send troops to Ukraine. NATO is a forum to support our eastern flank partners and countries, and that's what the focus has been on. And given the change state of readiness for that 8,500 troops that could go as part of this response force in conjunction with NATO, when should we expect to hear from the president of the United States about the situation as it relates to Russia, Ukraine, in the form of some public remarks to Americans about whatever sacrifices that might take in terms of the U.S. men and women going there and the like, and anything beyond that? Well, I don't have anything to predict in terms of uh, public speech. Obviously, he gave a two-hour press conference last, just a few days ago, where he answered a number of questions on Russia and Ukraine, and we'll continue to do that. Uh, but right now, a lot of our focus and his focus is on uh, diplomacy, is on engaging uh, with leaders, is on uh, having conversations with members of his national security team. And lastly, very quickly, the, the French president obviously has expressed a desire for the EU to be working sort of as the leader on this, as opposed to NATO leading the charges, the relationship goes to Russia, the negotiations go. Would the U.S. be comfortable with the EU leading those direct conversations as opposed to NATO being the lead? Well, there are a range of formats and forums that uh, have been ongoing, right, uh, including conversations through NATO, including conversations through the OSCE. I know that there are conversations that are happening uh, uh, through the Normandy format that are happening today in Paris, and we certainly support international e efforts that, that take place in a range of forums. Obviously, NATO is a forum that uh, we work with and coordinate with our partners as it relates to uh, military support and how we're going to uh, provide assurances to eastern flank countries, so that's certainly the appropriate forum for that. But again, there's a range of forums to, to discuss de-escalation, negotiation, including the Normandy format that's taking place today. Go ahead. Thank you, Jane. A question about immigration. Sure. Why is it that large numbers of single adult men are being released into the United States just hours after being apprehended at the southern border? Well, I'm not sure the specifics of what you're referring to, Peter. Uh, what I can tell you in terms of what our policy is and how we're approaching the border is that we continue to be under Title 42. Uh, migrants who cannot be expelled under Title 42 are placed into immigration proceedings, and one of those avenues could be placement in an alternative to detention program in the interior of the United States. Sometimes that means moving migrants to other parts of the United States to move to different detention facilities where they wait for next steps in the immigration process, such as a court hearing and are required to check in with the local ICE uh, office. Uh, so that is certainly something that is happening out there in the country and is consistent with our policy. And you mentioned that they're supposed to check in at a local ICE office, but we know that just between March and August, which is a very small sample size, DHS says more than 47,000 of these migrants that were given notices to report did not show up. So why let them into the U.S. unsupervised in the first place? 
Well, again, we have a stringent uh, protocols and processes that we implement here. Uh, that includes uh, expelling uh, individuals who come in under Title 42, given we are still in a global pandemic, and includes uh, those who are, do not show up will be subject to the repercussions of that. So that is the policy we're implementing uh, from our Homeland Security Department. Okay. Uh, on Ukraine, President Biden met with Putin in person in June in Geneva, and afterwards he came out and he said that the two of them arrived at a conclusion. He said, it's clearly not in anybody's interest, your countries are mine, for us to be in a situation where we're in a new Cold War, and I truly believe he thinks that he understands that. Has the president changed his opinion about what Putin thinks? Uh, how are you suggesting we're in a new Cold War? I'm just asking, it seems like the president thought in June that things were going to be good. And right now, things are not looking good. I don't actually think that's at all what the president said. He gave an extensive press conference where he conveyed it wouldn't happen overnight and that there was work that we could do together. Uh, and that is something that, that's how you approach a diplomatic relationship. You are vocal. There are consequences. When you disagree and when you have strong concerns and you've seen us implement those, you still look for places and areas where you can work together. That remains how we're working with Russia. Okay. There's a BuzzFeed report now suggesting that the Ukrainian government is upset the U.S. pulled citizens out of Ukraine before many other countries did. And this report says that a, close, uh, a source close to the Ukrainian president uh, thinks those Americans are safer in Kiev than in Los Angeles. What do you make of that? Well, we're always going to make decisions that are in the security interests of uh people who are serving as diplomats uh, around the world. And we have assessments that are made by the State Department, hence the decision and the announcement made uh, over the last couple of days, and the fact that we put in a level four advisory back in October, conveying very clearly to Americans they should leave Ukraine. Uh, look, I will let others assess, but there are 100,000 troops, Russian troops, on the border of Ukraine, and no clarity that the leader of Russia doesn't intend to invade. That sounds pretty dangerous to me. I would also say that the Ukrainian leaders have welcomed the security assistance, and they've even met us at the airport uh, that we have been providing over the course of the last several days. So that seems to be contradicting that assessment. Okay, and the last one. The Secretary of State a few days ago tweeted, I hashtag stand with Ukraine. Has that ever worked at stopping an authoritarian regime from doing anything? A hashtag? I will have to say that unlike the last administration, we don't think Twitter is the only means of engaging or negotiating or discussing important topics. But it is important for us to convey uh, to the Ukrainian people who do view uh, commentary through a range of forums. I don't know how many are Fox News watchers, maybe some of them, um, and including social media, that we stand with them, we support them. Uh, and that includes in their efforts to protect the sovereignty of their country. Uh, go ahead. Uh, you, you mentioned the visit by the German Chancellor. Yeah. Do you have a date on that? Or is Not yet. Hopefully we'll have one soon. Okay. Can I then pivot back to Russia? The U.S. is uh, in talks with other countries to deal with potential shortages in gas yeah. supply. Can you speak to that a little bit, and in particular, what requests uh, you've made of Qatar and whether they have responded uh, about whether they would be able to step in and fill any shortfall should that happen in the case of a conflict? Sure. So it's uh, our approach is not about any one country or any individual entity. We're engaging with a range of countries and partners 
uh, to discuss what we what could be shortages. Um, so I'm not going to get into any specifics of what any conversations entail. They can certainly speak for themselves. Um, but what I can give you an update on is that uh, a disruption, of course, in physical energy supplies transiting, transiting Ukraine would most acutely uh, affect natural gas markets in Europe. And so we're engaging our European allies to coordinate response planning, including how to deploy their existing energy stockpiles. That's part of it. But we've also been working to identify additional volumes of non-Russian natural gas from North Africa and the Middle East, Asia, and the United States. We're in discussion with major natural gas producers around the globe to understand their capacity and willingness to temporarily surge natural gas output and to allocate these volumes to European buyers. And we're also engaging with major buyers and suppliers of LNG to ensure flexibility in existing contracts and storage is managed and enables diversion to Europe. So we are, of course, preparing, as we are in a lot of other areas, a range of contingencies um, should there be a disruption for a range of reasons to natural gas. I would also note that natural gas markets are very regional by nature, uh, given constraints on how much can be exported. So any reduction in Russian exports of natural gas to Europe would have a minimal impact on U.S. prices. That's what our anticipation would be. Sorry, on uh, Qatar specifically, there's, some, uh, there's a belief that they've sort of allocated their production right now, which is running at more or less full capacity to Asia. Have you had any feedback from that country specifically? I'm just not going to speak for any individual country or any individual diplomatic conversations at this point in time. That's why I said that it's about, it's not based on our, our approach here and strategy is not based on one, one, any, one individual country or entity. It's a broad approach that includes engagement with Europeans as well as, uh, as suppliers in North Africa, Middle East, Asia, and in the U.S. Probably, can you say, you know, last week was when the administration began to sort of ratchet up warnings that an invasion could be imminent, could happen at any time. This week, where, uh, can you say how, if at all, the president's view has changed about the risk? Is it the same? Is it getting worse? Is it, is I it think getting... when we said it was imminent, it remains imminent. Uh, but again, we can't make a prediction of what decision President Putin will make. We're still engaged in diplomatic discussions and negotiations. The element of the last week has changed the president's view one way or the other on that risk. Well, imminent has a pretty intense meaning, doesn't it? Okay. And it's still the belief that it's Correct. Yes. Thank you. Yes, go ahead, Jeff. Uh, Jen, the Kremlin is using the U.S. announcement of putting 8,500 troops on alert to say that it's the U.S. that is fueling this conflict. The White House's reaction to that? Uh, well, I would say that our uh, commitment to our NATO partners and allies is ironclad. If you go back to 9-11, the, the first time that Article 5 was uh, invoked. It was in defense of the United States, and we take our commitment to our eastern flank partners, NATO allies, very seriously. Uh, but what is important to note is that the aggressive behavior here is on the part of the Russians. This is a defensive alliance, not an offensive alliance. And what we're doing here is uh, not making a decision, as has been clear by NATO partners and by the president and our members of our national security team, to deploy, but just, just to be ready. And we have a responsibility to do that so that people who might be deployed can tell their family members it's a shorter period of time um, and uh, to, be, uh, to be ready to, to uh, deliver on our commitment to our NATO partners. Clarify, are those 8,500 troops who are now after ready, as you said, are they already based in Europe? We obviously have Europe and the United there. States. Europe and the United States. Mm -hmm. And did NATO request that the U.S. put them on the ready, or is that a U.S. offer? It's a conversation with NATO, so a collaborative discussion. And a follow-up on Peter's question about Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, are, are there direct questions, or excuse me, direct 
contacts with Ukraine right now to allay their concerns that the U.S. was acting preemptively to, or, or too early, too soon to take personnel out, out of the country? Uh, so, yeah, we are in constant contact with the Ukrainians um, to reiterate our support, uh, to convey uh, updates on, sh on shipments of supplies, military equipment, something that's been happening over the last several days. Uh, our national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, has spoken with his counterpart at least eight times over the past uh, few weeks, and U.S. officials at the State Department, Defense Department, across our government continue to work in close coordination on a daily basis with Ukrainian officials. Secretary Blinken, as you know, was in Ukraine last week, and he called his Ukrainian counterpart to read out his meeting with Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov. So we have been in constant and close contact with Ukrainians' uh, leaders uh, at a range of levels, uh, as well as with our European partners. Just lastly, uh, Senator McConnell gave you some unusual praise the White House today about its preparations for Ukraine, saying that it looked like the White House was prepared to act before an incursion and not after. Do you know what steps he was referring to there? Is that just the, the troop deployment? And B, were you pleased to hear some positive words from Senator McConnell? Well, yes, of course we were. I mean, look, I think um, abiding by our um, Article 5 commitments, um, standing up for the territorial sovereignty of Ukraine, making clear that one country should not be able to invade and take over territory from another country, that's not just a Democratic belief or a Republican belief. That's central to who we are as a country and who leaders like Leader McConnell or Senator McConnell, like President Biden, have that's what their belief has been for many decades. So we certainly welcome that. I would note there's there was a bipartisan delegation. Uh, we have uh, had a, done a lot of briefings uh, from leaders uh, in the administration with uh, Hill leaders. Those will continue uh, as well. And what was the second part? Oh, what was he was referring to? Yes. I, I certainly would, would point you to him. I would say that we obviously have taken a, a number of steps in recent weeks, including very close coordination, more than 100 engagements with European partners, staying in close contact with the Ukrainians, uh, obviously uh, taking steps, including sanctions last week, uh, making clear that we uh, are going to have troops at the ready to support uh, uh, NATO efforts. Uh, so uh, I would point you to him, but uh, we have been taking ever, and even uh, noting false flag operations and kind of calling out propaganda, but I would point you to him or his team on any specifics he was referring to. Go ahead. Republican lawmakers in Florida are advancing a bill that would bar the state from doing business with companies that transport undocumented migrants into the state. Does the White House have a response to this legislation? Uh, I am not familiar with the specifics of the legislation. I, I can check with our team and see. Uh, go ahead. I'll start with a, a question on behalf of a reporter who can't be in the room today. His name is Pablo Manriquez. The outlet is called Futuro Media. And he asks, what unilateral authority is the president willing to exercise for immigrant relief that has not been tried yet? For immigration reform or relief or, well, I would say um, we're going to have to keep trying some of the measures that we have we have been working on to date. You know, the president put forward, uh, proposed an immigration bill, a comprehensive immigration bill in his first day in office. We've obviously continued to work with leaders in the Senate to try to push that forward, including trying to work to have components included in the president's Build Back Better agenda. Uh, we're going to continue to work to not only instill and uh, implement safer security measures, but also more humane measures with how uh, people are treated, how children are treated. And we're also going to work, uh, continue to work and double, redouble our efforts to address root causes. So we're going to continue to approach this from many fronts. Pablo also asks, is the president willing to reallocate unused green cards and apply them to immigrants waiting in decades-long green card backlogs? Well, we have... Uh, 
reform to the system, uh, green card system, is certainly something we've talked about as a part of immigration reform. Uh, I can check and see if there's anything we can do unilaterally on that front. Back on Ukraine and Russia, yeah. can you give us a status report on the written response to Moscow? When can we expect it and will it be made public? Sure. Um, I don't have an exact timing update, of course, that would be um, led by our Secretary of State and our diplomatic team who have been closely engaging in these efforts. Um, in terms of whether or not it would be public, I would note that typically it's not. Um, typically, uh, paper paper that is part of negotiations or discussions, if you look at the Iran nuclear deal or you look at any treaty, not that this is a treaty, but just as a point of comparison, negotiations or discussions uh, is typically not made public. Um, it's a part of the diplomatic process um, and has been used by our diplomats for many decades. Is the president involved in the crafting of the response? The president certainly uh, engages, is briefed by, and uh, approves every component of our response and our efforts in this uh, in this process. One more for me. Um, one of the criticisms that some fellow Democrats have been voicing in the press uh, recently is that the president has surrounded himself with a corps of loyal aides who have been with him for many years, and uh, increasingly these Democrats are publicly saying that these aides have left the president ill-served. Are you aware of a response from the president to those criticisms? Uh, in terms of what? Well, uh, there was a the Democratic senator quoted today in the newspaper that said that uh, sometimes the boxcars are empty. Uh, you know, you know that Senator Manchin has publicly voiced. I was, I didn't really even understand that quote, just to be honest. But um, here's what I would say, and I think I know what you're getting at, Steve. So let me try to answer your question. Um, I am new to President uh, Biden's orbit. Um, I've only been working for him since I uh, joined the administration during the transition and then joined uh, in this role here that I'm still in today. Uh, what I have found is that uh, I see him on a daily basis, sometimes multiple times a day. Uh, he asks me consistently what I think, and by the people who have been surrounding him for some time, whether that's Ron Klain or Steve Reschetti or others, they've certainly encouraged and supported that relationship and engagement. What I've seen the president do, and I know this isn't what everybody has visibility into, so I guess that's why I'm sharing this level of detail, is if you're in a meeting with him and you're having a conversation, if you don't know the answer, he wants more information, he picks up the phone and he calls the person he thinks does. Sometimes that's Ron Klain, sometimes that's Susan Rice, sometimes it's Brian Deese, sometimes it's Louisa Terrell. That's how the president operates, and that effort to uh, really empower team members and have that direct relationship with the president is something that uh, that's been my experience to date. Go ahead. Thanks, Jen. Um, just back to your comment about White House outreach on the Hill. Yeah. Can you confirm the White House is holding two classified briefings? Yeah, sure. And let me and let me give you a little bit more uh, detail on that because I think I have that here too. So these these briefings are led, of course, by um, the State Department and Defense Departments. Uh, but today. Uh, we are providing two additional classified bipartisan briefings for House and Senate leadership and committee staff. They'll be providing updates on recent developments with Ukraine and Russia and the state of play. Uh, we're also working on all members briefings for the House and the Senate in the coming days. In the last week alone, Secretary Blinken and Deputy Secretary Sherman have spoken to nearly 20 members with additional engagements planned this week. And since December, we've had dozens of engagements with Congress on Ukraine and Russia, including uh, two by President Biden, including one on December 7th with, big four, uh, with the Big Four, uh, a January 19th virtual meeting with CODEL, uh, members, um, six briefings from National Security Advisor Sullivan to bipartisan members of the House and Senate, including leadership and National Security Committee chairs 
and ranking members, nine interagency briefings for bipartisan members of national security committees, eight interagency briefings for bipartisan Hill staff, including leadership committee and personal staff, and of course, an open hearing that Toria Newland uh, participated in back in December. Um, so this is an ongoing process and we will continue to provide regular briefings, some classified, some not, uh, moving forward. Oh, go ahead. Um, is there any updates on the federal website for testing that you can give us on how many tests went out or how many were requested? Sure. I certainly understand the question. There has been a great deal of interest. Um, I don't have an exact number. I know that's something we will be putting out. Let me check on the status of that. I know I've got to wrap this up, so let me just quickly try to get to as many as I can. I also wanted to ask about the testing. Do you know at this point how many of the tests that you've already ordered have come in yet? I don't mean going out to the American people that are in your stockpile and also when you'll be signing contracts for the other... For the additional $500 million. Yes. Uh, Let me check on both of those uh, questions for you. And also I wanted to ask you um, about yesterday when you were talking about the competition executive yeah. order, um, you were saying about how the White House has met 100% of the deadlines in that order. I know a lot of those deadlines are for writing plans to do things um, in different... Agencies. Sure. Can you talk about what tangible results Americans will see in the next six months to a year out of all those different plans? You've met those deadlines, but now people just start to see the effect of them. Sure. I mean, the president talked about this a little bit yesterday, but part of that, and I don't have an exact timeline on it because they all have different implementation efforts, but some tangible things are being able to buy hearing aids over the counter, being able to take some of your products and get them repaired anywhere you want without worrying about uh, that being a challenge, uh, making sure we're taking steps to address lack of competition uh, that is out there in a range of industries where prices are going up. So every agency is writing different plans, and I'm sure they can detail and outline and more specifics, but I also, Bharat from our NAC team has been one of the people leading this effort, and maybe I'll see if he can come and give you guys all a more comprehensive briefing. Okay, Todd, last one, and then I got to, you guys, I think, have together. Um, some members of Congress have uh, been promoting this theory that the FBI had at least one provocateur in the January 6th mom. Um, can the White House say unequivocally that there were no federal agents who provoked illegal attacks? Well, FBI Director Ray has already said that the FBI had no evidence of this baseless conspiracy, and he would certainly know. Um, and over last week, we've seen a number of House Republicans uh, announcing billions of dollars worth of infrastructure projects in their districts. Um, these are Republicans who voted against that bill. Um, what does the White House have to say about that? We welcome their support for the president's agenda and an agenda that was supported by some Republicans, not the majority, and hopefully they'll take the right vote to support their communities and jobs, job creation in the future. Maybe we'll make them think twice. Thanks, everyone.